Welcome to Michael Stone's podcast, Awaken the World. This podcast is part of an online community library we're developing, one that contains podcasts, videos, transcripts and booklets based on Michael's talks. The goal of this library and this podcast is to bring mindfulness and mental health into the spotlight. Through this work, we're creating new ways to wake up through socially engaged, conscious, spiritual practice. We're creating a culture of compassion and collaboration. We've left our physical monasteries and we're bringing them online. Before we get to today's podcast, I want to take a moment to ask you to consider becoming a patron of this podcast through Patreon. Pledging is easy and can be as little as $1 per month. Just go to patreon.com forward slash Michaelstone and click on the big orange button on the top right of the page. Thank you for listening. Feels to be a gap right here if anyone wants to move forward. I brush my teeth. Um, a small bird left this on my cushion this morning. Um, it's a copy of the speech from the throne by the Honorable Judith Guichon, Lieutenant Governor, at the opening of our Parliament's session this September. And I'll just skim over, but she acknowledges the land that they gathered on, the wildfires that struck the province this year, 1,200 1,200 fires that burned 1.1 million hectares of land, an area four times the size of Metro Vancouver. The opioid crisis, 978 people to overdose, 876 more in the first seven months of this year, people whose lives were full of promise and potential. The homelessness and housing crisis, the arbitrary nature through which people arrive in the homeless position. And in in memoriam, as we mark the passing of British Columbians we have lost, let us not forget that their spirit lives on in the acts and the deeds that help to make our province a better place. Community volunteer Tom Ashiro, environmentalist Gwen Barley, sports trailblazer Barbara Howard, political scientist Norman Ruff, MP and women's right advocate Margaret, Margaret Mitchell, yoga innovator Michael Stone, writer and commentator Merv Ade, and others. We honor them and their contribution to our province. I feel like I'm a bad person to give advice. <laughs> I'm like, the person that dated their teacher. <laughs> and 
overcame that weird, you know, process. And then the griever, <laughs> who's grieving with many thousands of people. I'm glad and heartened that we're all here together. And I'm so sorry that we're all here together. This might take more than an hour. (laughs) Expecting our third baby, Michael and I had planned to rent the cabin just on the other side of this building to have the baby because we live on an island where there's no hospital. So you can't, I mean, you sure can, but legally you're not, you're not encouraged to have a baby on Pender Island. So we had planned to rent this, this cabin. And um, it's fitting to be in this room um, on this land where the midwifery practice 100 meters away is bringing life into this world in this room that is a circle celebrating the end of a life. Michael always said babies are born on an inhale. And in meditation we we hold the breath like a pencil in a way. It's sometimes said there's a beginning, there's a middle, and there's an end. And our life is supposedly like this. Patabi Joyce, one of Michael's teachers, called the exhale, little bit dying. And so we're practicing this all the time. I was reading a book I love, a love story of loss. by an American poet, and she writes how Henry Ford believed a person's soul was held in their last breath. So he captured the the last breath of his friend Thomas Edison in a test tube. (laughs) And I mean, it's a bit ironic how much Michael taught how we die on an exhale. And then really, I mean, I think a lot of us know that he donated his lungs and they saved a life. And the nature of that transplant is you die on an inhale because the lungs have to remain inflated. And so actually his exhale left his lungs from inside somebody else who was living. And there's something really soothing in that. But I wonder also and being here and feeling his death, this question of the pencil and the beginning and the middle and the end, and uh, where is the beginning and where is the end? I'm not so sure. When does the living start? These babies are kicking. (laughs) Caitlin and I were joking that we could just meditate on the movements of the baby. And I'm not so sure when we're gone. 
being with Michael in the hospital, and maybe you know this if you've lost someone and been close to someone dying, but it's not so clear when you're done. My therapist reminded me that if it's helpful to lean on the belief that life and death are binary, then go for it. (laughs) I can't pinpoint where he went or how, but it was not so fast. The Heart Sutra says, form is no other than emptiness, emptiness no other than form. We chant it for 49 days, that heart, the Heart Sutra. And uh, I think in part, because we just don't know how long it takes to go. Um, two days after returning from the hospital, um, I was sleeping. I was sleeping, I co-sleep with the kids, and my mom was sleeping on the other side of one of my children so that she could help with nighttime stuff so I could sleep a bit more. And, um, and I was sleeping and dreaming. In this dream, I was walking up a spiral path that was on a hill, surrounded by flowering bushes, roses, and various things. It was really beautiful. And Michael was just ahead of me on the path. And he was walking slowly, but I, and I was chasing him slowly in a way, but he wouldn't slow down or stop. And, and he was saying, I'm going to die, and there's nothing that can be done. And I was following him and saying, nothing? Can we call your naturopath? <laughs> <laughs> and so he, he said, there's nothing that can be done Sure, we can call my naturopath. (laughs) But there's nothing that can be done. And we got to the top of this spiral path. And then in the next frame of this dream, I was on a rocky shore, and he was walking out on a low, sandy stretch of beach towards the ocean with a friend of his, Koshin, who is a, a hospice, a Zen hospice worker. And... And then I woke up from the dream, and the room was flashing with lights. And I just lay in bed feeling that contact, what felt like contact, for a minute. And then I woke up my mom, and she just looked. We didn't say anything, and she got up and got my father to go turn the lights off. And strangely, we never spoke of it. And I was I was reflecting on that, but there's this there's like a lineage in my certainly my mother's side of the family of receiving messages from the dead. So it wasn't a question. (laughs) Just turn the lights off. But it would have been the car parked directly outside of our bedroom at 1.30 in the morning. It wasn't the hazards. It was just... And 
I, I, so I, I don't know when we go. <laughs> but the chants, the, um, the forms, they hold us. The Heart Sutra really helped me and felt um, like it just happened on its own, like it wanted to happen. And so I really encourage you, if you ever stumble upon something that really strikes you, like a text, to memorize it. Because um, the, it's like work to do it, and like staying close to the breath, it's like work and practice, and then when you really need it, it just shows up. You don't even do it. It just shows up. Um, I thought I might share the teaching I first heard the night that I first went to Center of Gravity in Toronto in 2008. Because I memorized it. It really it stuck with me. Just one second. It's called A Single Excellent Night, and it's from the Middle Length Discourses, uh, one text of several major texts in the Pali Canon. And it goes... Let not a person revive the past, nor on the future build their hope. For the path, the past has been left behind, and the future has not been reached. Instead, with insight, let us see each presently arisen state. Let us know that and be sure of it, invincibly, unshakably. Today the effort must be made. Tomorrow, death may come, who knows. No bargain with mortality will keep him and his hordes away. But one who dwells thus ardently, relentlessly, by day, by night, it is she, the peaceful sage, has said, has had a single excellent night. We try really hard when we practice to pay attention and take things in vividly. And it's work. And we fall in and out of it. And we do the work. And then something like a death happens and it's like a rupture. And then that vividness just happens. It's not work. I can imagine that when you heard the news, it was vivid, and things that you were taking in were vivid. Um, I, was, I was taken to the hospital at 1.30 in the morning by police, and In the car on the way, we're leaving an island at night, so it's by police boat. So in the, in the police car on the way to the dock, I remember just asking questions, like, tell me everything you can tell me. I want to know all the details. Tell me every single detail. And there's only so much they know. And so I, I repeated, you know, I wanted to hear it a few times. And it didn't help at all. <laughs> <laughs> 
and then on the police boat. I was stepping onto the boat and the dock was, it was a very still night, but the dock was just doing this a little bit. And so someone grabbed me, I was stepping up, as I was stepping onto the boat, just grabbed my elbow to stabilize me from somewhere in the dark. And, and then I remember having to pee so badly, <laughs> knowing we're about to go on this 40-minute drive on the boat. And so the officers in all their gear in this like armored like police boat, like open the little hatch so I can like slide down into the where the what is it called the head? <laughs> Waiting there very respectfully, <laughs> turning their backs. <laughs> and then and then I remember one of the officers putting on this um really Inspector Gadget-looking, like, headpiece with a night vision goggle. So they drove by night vision entirely. Um, and then just the details of inside the boat, in the police themselves, the lights of the dashboard, the darkness, and then this, like, immense headgear. <laughs> it's really a technological moment. And, uh, and, and I remember feeling like uh, trying to put my mind into the future was just a void. And going back was felt just like a void. Everything felt agape. And, and, um, and I was just taking in a lot of things and looking around. And then I saw the moon outside the window and everything was very still, black and blue, and then just the moon like shimmering on the channel. And, uh, and I just stayed with the moon. Um, and something felt very, very comforting about the moon. And then I realized it was, it was a, a waning crescent, which means the right side of the moon in the northern hemisphere is dark. And, and it struck me that it was the opposite to the moon the night our son Olin was being born, which was a waxing crescent, so it was full on the right. And I looked it up later and realized it was actually exactly percent matches. And, but there was just this feeling that like I could put them together. And it was like, it was like just enough. <laughs> and so we went to the hospital by another police car and I never saw the front of the hospital it was the police car was like this cave and um, and then I was in the emergency waiting room And then the heart sutra just happens, and the forms help and hold everything. I um, give associations, I guess, to everything, but I never like the smell of alcohol swabs. <laughs> like they're really kind of intense. But after this weekend, they're so comforting to me. Mm -hmm.
you know, like part of being close. And uh, after everything, I don't know, that still lingers. After, after bringing Michael for the surgery, I'd spent three days in the ICU and hadn't left, you know, hadn't seen daylight or <laughs> a window and um, brought him down for the surgery and waited for the surgery to finish. And then I went back to the ICU to ask for a ferry transport form to save $50. <laughs> this was at one in the morning. <laughs> like, I have to start pinching. <laughs> So I went back to the ICU to get the doctor to sign the form, and, and I was so tired. I was there with my friend Aaron, and it was nice to go back. It was nice actually to go back to the room he'd been in and see it empty and feel like the room changed. Feel like somehow him being there had changed the room. And then I was ready to go and we went to press the elevator button. And the door just starts opening and closing and opening and closing. <laughs> and not only that, but we got in finally. And then, <laughs> and then the number one button to get down to the main floor was broken. <laughs> and we just like laughed, you know. Said, come on, Michael. <laughs> we want to go home. <laughs> and so we took the back stairs <laughs> and left through the parking lot. And I never saw the front of the hospital. And the next day, I I called my midwife first thing in the morning and I explained the circumstances and said, can I come in right now? And, and can you send me for an ultrasound? Of course, they send me back to the same hospital that my clothes in for the ultrasound. <laughs> and, uh, and then, you know, and I saw the baby, which was beautiful. And then I went to see my midwife. And on the way there, um, I was driving past a construction site. And, and, I guess in the diesel they use for those trucks, there's ethanol or something. But the smell of the alcohol was um, so um, such a transport. I was back, you know, back in the hospital in that moment, vividly. And I think this is like in practice when memory shows up. It's not, it's not just, oh, the mind is, you know, I'm going back there again. <laughs> Here I am, controlled. It's, an ex it's a full experience. Each experience of memory is completely full, along with the sensations and perceptions and emotions. 
the practice is not that we disallow memory from happening or even future thinking necessarily. It's that we let them in and we let them out and we just hold them gently. And you pull over if you're driving. <laughs> <laughs> And then sometimes, sometimes we get stuck. And uh, last week I, I realized I hadn't, I hadn't incidentally smelt an alcohol swab in a while. <laughs> so I almost went to the pharmacy <laughs> to get some. Let not a person revive the past or on the future build her hopes, for the past has been left behind and the future has not been reached. So I settled with, with what was coming and going and not coming and not going, and um, I have not yet bought alcohol swabs. <laughs> But this brings me to the question of how do we move forward? What is letting go now? What does it mean to leave the past behind and to think of the future? Michael had a lot of shoes. He had, his feet were just over a size 12 for a man, which is really big. And, um, you know, several pairs of runners, blundstones, garden shoes, winter boots, rain boots, a well-worn pair of toms that he bought for going on retreat with his teacher, Ankyo Roshi, when he did his Jukai ceremony several years ago. And, uh, and then an almost pair, he asked for wool, felted wool lined slippers for Father's Day. But we had to order them from the UK and they only came in a 12 or a 13. And so he's just over a 12 and like we couldn't risk them not fitting. So less that one pair. There are a lot of shoes. <laughs> And I don't know how to move his bathroom drawer stuff. If I will, how I do it. The forms help, but there's no form for that. <laughs> Maybe I need to make something up. We planted an orchard together. Apple trees, pear trees, plum trees, cherry trees. Elderberry, mulberry. And you plant them expecting to get fruit. But it takes years. You know, he planted them last year. He, he did the watering system and I did the staking and pruning. And And this was year two, so the apples were coming and I picked off the fruit so the roots, so the tree can really establish. I left one apple so we could try it. 
and it grew really big. And so the expectation was fruit, but also it was a process and a relationship with the tree, with the practice of taking care of them. I was writing a sentence about how we did that together and I accidentally typed togethering. I think it's easy to wonder what the point is if you don't get fruit. What a pity. I really love New Yorker cartoons. <laughs> Michael would read the articles and I would look at the cartoons. <laughs> and he would leave them for me in the bathroom. <laughs> Where mom has a moment <laughs> with the cartoons. And uh, I actually started um, submitting to the New Yorker cartoon contest. <laughs> it's like a secret passion. <laughs> After, uh, so for Christmas last year, he got me like the year's best New Yorker cartoon compilation magazine. <laughs> and there's one, there's one um, cartoon that has a picture of a tombstone grave marker, and it says, "Why did I eat so much kale?" <laughs> <laughs> I think a lot of people are wondering this. His death is a testament to the power of a kind of neurological wiring that many of us don't live with. And how well he lived is a testament to the tools that he used. So we eat the kale. Mm. And, um, and we learn a bit from his death, I think, about what it means to be wired in a way where your experience can be really intense. Because we might not know it ourselves. Um, in the language we use as a culture, these experiences that are further from like a neurologically normal, typical experience we call pathology. And maybe this helps get the right medicine. You know, a kind of tool, which is important. But 
some things we acquire, cancer is acquired, and we try cure it. But I'm not sure if you can cure someone's experience. I'm not sure if you can cure the way that somebody perceives the world, or that you would want to. And you need to cope with appropriate tools and medicine. Michael appeared to be thriving, I think, to many people, maybe the most. Um, and he was working really, really, really hard all the time. And others who may suffer with various things may appear to not be working very, very hard. But we have no idea how hard they're working. And no matter what it looks like on the outside, I imagine that everyone who's working that hard is training their heart immensely. Michael wrote in um, a handbound book, a limited edition book, many years ago, there is no difference between the one who is sick and the one who is not sick. I think because he felt um, because he felt the potential for death, because he was visited by darkness, he could live really vividly and really fully. He cherished experiences and um, especially experiences with others and relationships. He let things go quite easily. He wrote lots of poems and then, you know, let them go. He made art and let it go. Mm -hmm. He made this beautiful pastel, or oil pastel drawing when we lived in Toronto of um, the experience of watching snow fall right in front of your eyes, you know, and it's so thick. It's just like right in front of your vision. And he made a series of these and then he painted them all white. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, come on. <laughs> he kept every single letter a student ever gave him. Every single one. There are boxes. There are envelopes stacked in boxes. They're not objects anymore. They're not information, they're symbolic, they're symbolic of how he cared, what he cared about, um, what was important to him. Stephen Batchelor in the book Buddhism Without Beliefs writes, death is certain its time is uncertain. What should I do? 
probably, and I think for Michael, if you feel that, you really feel that um, experiences and your relationships are really important. Waking up to your life and waking up with others, especially, is really important. Michael was really attuned to details. Um, and I think part of when, if you're really tuned in to your experience, you really start to take care of details. And I think part of that, he made things quite beautiful. He made things at home beautiful. He, you know. And I don't just mean in like a pretty sense, like aesthetically, you know, textures, sounds, like, he was a connoisseur of his environment. And I think there's a legacy in that. It's a training. Um, and it starts with the practice of waking up that he's leaving us. And yet, I wonder about moving forwards. I still don't know. I um, We have to move financially. We can't afford to stay in our home. And Nathan and I were plotting how to take the orchard <laughs> with us. <laughs> how he could help me take the trees. <laughs> um, sometimes I start spinning in, especially at night. The, uh, okay, this happened to me and our kids, and now i got to deal with it. And there's all these details, you know. I think we all feel this, and in different ways we feel this. Sometimes I can really get in that loop, and it feels pretty bad, it feels pretty negative. And when I when I have enough space in my mind to remember that I can hold that with awareness, just hold that um, story, that spinning with awareness, you know, sometimes that opens up just enough space. I mean, it's true, these conditions are true, this is happening, it is happening actually to me and my family quite intensely, all those things are true. Um, but there's a, there's a way, there's a way, there are a few options. <laughs> and it's a much longer narrative. This, this, this story isn't so small, right? It's a much longer narrative that includes where the story came from and includes what unfolds from this point in time. And, um, and the stuck feeling can be very real. A friend um, sent me a quote I emailed them in the middle of the night, I think, and said I was feeling very stuck, which at three in the morning means ruminating. <laughs> at three in the afternoon, it means chips. <laughs> <laughs> so she wrote me this 
It's a quote by Michael Egan from Psychoanalysis and the Kabbalah. I have heard Rebbe Menachem Schneerson say, wherever you find yourself, no matter how desolate or meaningless a place, there is work to be done, sparks to be freed. I might add sparks to be mined. Wherever you are, there are sparks to be mined. Sparks of life to be released in whatever place you find yourself. Sparks to be experienced, worked with, created, transformative moments. Sparks to contact, connect with, undo dissociations, splits. There is a hidden spark everywhere. Wherever you are means psychically, psychically, the place you are living your life, the feel of your life. Whatever your psychic space may be, despair, rage, love, hate, deadness, fear, joy, wherever you are, a spark is waiting for you, for you alone, because only you can contact, distill, release, explore, and be a vehicle for your own unique set of sparks. Sparks right now in a process of creation. No one can do it but you, because the sparks you are involved with are creating your own being, coming into existence with your whole life. We are the tender of the sparks, not just the tender of the garden, but tender of the sparks in our garden. Sparks grow in our gardens, and gardens grow in our sparks. If a friend sends you something like that, you keep them as a friend. (laughs) For a long, long time. Michael was a spark tender. He wanted people to leave from his teachings, to leave with from his teachings, two feelings. One of being consoled and the other of being ignited. That was his bottom line. We have a few altars at home now. One is a place for offerings to Papa. It's full of flowers and pictures, Play-Doh, hearts, trucks, and uh, poems. My son built an altar underneath the altar (laughs) for Froggy, (laughs) who... After Michael was in the hospital, Froggy was ill, and he would tend him. He put him on the altar, and he created an incense bowl with... I told him he couldn't light incense in the cabinet, because this was inside the cabinet. (laughs) So he took a little cup and put some um, ashes in it, um, fireplace ashes in it, and put a stick He's four. (laughs) Put a stick in the center and taped a flame to the top. (laughs) And this is Froggy's altar, and nobody touches Froggy's altar. (laughs) He's a spark tender, too. (laughs) And another altar is a place where I keep the urn and 
a candle and a Buddha and some meadowsweet and a rabbit skin. And it's just in the corridor, private corridor. And the third altar is for me and for the kids. It's for the path forwards. It has a candle, some water, a love story. And a walnut. The walnut is a spark of mine. And it's more than a walnut. There were a lot of books on the stairs. There's always a lot of books on our stairs. <laughs> on the way up or down. <laughs> this was on the stairs. Um, um, among several other books when Michael died. The meaning of life, oh, I should say, this is uh, Greg Mogensen from Greeting the Angels, an imaginal view of the morning process. The meaning of life is something we find through the morning of life lost. Indeed, the morning of losses and the making of culture are synonymous activities. If we are to keep our lives flowing in a meaningful direction, we must become conscious of how the dead turn in their graves as we walk by over top. Dialogue and communion are important. We must open ourselves to the questions and problems in which the souls of the dead are caught. For we only become fully generative adults by taking on the burden of our forebears' karma. Mourning is not the process by means of which we let go of human beings. On the contrary, it is the rite of passage in which all generations join together to make human beings of one another. After Michael's death, um, the number of people following his work grew by the thousands quite rapidly. And I think now the audience is much wider than it's ever been. There are folks from um, many walks of life who are really listening. I find it sad to think of his life as if it's a pencil, as if it's this idea we have of a beginning and a middle and an end. I trust that it's more like this room. I'm gonna end with a poem by a poet Michael loved, Gary Snyder, who's a beat poet in San Francisco. It's called Axe Handles. One afternoon, the last week in April, showing Kai how to throw a hatchet, one half turn, and it sticks in a stump. He recalls the hatchet head without a handle in the shop and go gets it and wants it for his own. 
A broken off axe handle behind the door is long enough for a hatchet. We cut it to length and take it with the hatchet head and working hatchet to the wood block. There I begin to shape the old handle with the hatchet and the phrase first learned from Ezra Pound rings in my ears. When making an axe handle, the pattern is not far off. And I say this to Kai, look, we'll shape the handle by checking the handle of the axe we cut with. And he sees, and I hear it again. It's in Lu Ji's Wen Fu, 4th century AD, Essays on Literature, Essay on Literature. In the preface, in making the handle of an axe by cutting wood with an axe, the model is indeed near at hand. My teacher, Shi Hisang Chen, translated that and taught it years ago, and I see. Pound was an axe, Chen was an axe. I am an axe, and my son a handle. Soon to be shaping again, model and tool, craft of culture. Here we go on. And so when we sit and practice, not so much a line in your life as a circle. <laughs> and the posture itself is a form through which we're in contact with Michael and learning from Michael and supporting him. So I thank you all for your practice. Um, you guys have the energy for a partner exercise or should we take a break? Take a break? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Let's do that. Mm -hmm.